Uh, can you remember Jesus' first miracle? Can you, if you think, what was Jesus' first miracle? Can you remember? Yeah, well, this is his wedding at Cana. What's the miracle at the wedding at Cana? Here, there's the, uh, that's just my question. What's the, what, what's the miracle? He listened to his mother. That is, that is, in fact, the second miracle. That's the second miracle. And you remember that that was the, the virgin mother's last words recorded in Scripture are, do whatever he tells you. Do you know that? Do you know that's the last time Mary speaks in Scripture? Isn't that great? That is so cool. That's the last time you hear her speak. So it is really cool. That's the, that he listened to his mother was the second miracle. Uh, what's the, what was the first miracle? That was the third miracle. This is the bruzek exegesis, you see. As is, I, th- I think that it's water into wine is, in fact, a miracle. That he listened to his mother. Well, I guess we'll, in this class, at least call that a miracle. And then, uh, so what's the, what's the big miracle there, though? That he's there. That he's there. What you're supposed to, he- what you're supposed to hear, I think, in that miracle. I, I once talked about this, and then Burmeister, who's the missionary in Africa, who said, well, I translated that text, and nobody ever gets it. But that's right. That's, that's sort of what he'd come up with, too. The miracle is that Jesus is there. You remember that it's, a, it's almost a non-miracle miracle in the sense that um, nothing big happens. There's other places, you know, Jesus spits on people or he touches them or he goes places nobody else will go. He does things what other, other people won't do. And people are sort of shocked by that. Or they're, you know, even at the feedings of the 5,000, for example, he takes the bread and blesses and breaks, you know, so it's all tactile. The first, the first miracle story in John 2 is very different because... He just shows up. There's this odd interchange between him and his mother where she says, you know, it's time. And he says, this really isn't your business. Um, and then, but then he does do anyway what she said. But nobody really knows where he's done it. You remember the, the steward says, gosh, where did this come from? I bought the stuff at Costco and I don't remember, you know, getting this and you must have hidden it. And besides that, it's backwards because you saved the good wine for last. The real miracle there, what you're supposed to see is the miracle is in fact that Jesus is there, that God is present. So the very first miracle in scripture is about the presence of Christ. Um, you know, obviously the first miracle uh, of the New Testament, I suppose, is Christmas. If you read, I don't know how you count miracles, but you know, chronologically, that, that God is present in the manger and then that God is present among us. Well, um, you sort of pick up now and, and that's where he goes. I'm just kind of kind of talk about a few things from 44 on. I, um, I have this sense with now, and I'm, I'm, I found this, I found this now in both chapters, where I'm just begging him to stop because I can't take anymore. Uh, it just gets, it's just too much. You know, it's just, I get to the end and I, I love it and I'm exhausted by the time I get there. Um, this is the reason I went to seminary long ago far away and in some ways um, I was deflected from it and in, in some ways that was a good thing because uh, now when uh, uh, well th- it's just a different way of thinking so I'm glad to have the way that I think but I'm also glad now um, it's happened almost once a year for the past three or four years that I would I would give a, a lecture and then someone would actually give me a Nowen book uh, and then it was Carla who actually gave me this one that I didn't know he's written I was in a I took a few days off last week, and so, of course, I spent one day in a seminary bookstore in Los Angeles at the Fuller Seminary and bought a ton of books and looked at things. But uh, it was fascinating. I went to the now in section, and there are 50, you know, books like this if there's one, which can be uh, overwhelming, but it can also be sort of a great gift. Anyway, so you, you come to now, and, and the great thing about last time was um, 
In fact, I, I, I'm sure that I'll preach on this for the funeral for, it was interesting that for um, Gloria's funeral, Jack selected the gospel reading. Uh, he selected the Beatitudes, which is a fascinating text to select for your wife's funeral. Um, and you remember in the midst of the Beatitudes, uh, Nouns very clear about saying you, the mourning, uh, you know, those who mourn will be comforted. And then the fascinating step that he makes is actually the comfort is in the mourning. That buried deep down, you know, hidden in the darkness, in the mist somewhere, Jesus is present. You know, if you go all the way to the bottom of hell and then you sort of dig down deeper, there Jesus is, you know. That's a, that's, a remarkable, that's a remarkable revelation because then, and this was the whole thing about mourning your losses, you begin to think about your world in a whole different way. One of the things I've noticed uh, in myself and in you and generally in Christians um, is our reactive nature, you see. So one of the things that happens to us is that we are, uh, we are reactive you know, by nature. And, you know, that's the way we're created. You know, we hear things that we don't believe and we react to that. We are hurt by someone, feel pain, we react to that. Um, our children disappoint us, we, we react to that. You know, we are by nature, you know, we are by nature reactive. One of the interesting things um, uh, about maturity in being a Christian um, is to be less and less reactive. You know, the opposite of being reactive might be something like um, being compassionate or being empathetic or being understanding uh, or being patient. I, I couldn't find a single I couldn't find a single thing that that would encapsulate what it is to be the opposite of being reactive. But it, it and, and then but then I sort of realized it's because the Christian life is a bundle of things that is opposite reactive and then um, uh, then Christians who have maturity, you know, select the thing that most needs to be applied at any given point. But, uh, you know, the payoff at the end, and this was now unclear at the end of the chapter, is you can only do that when you have such confidence that Christ is with you that um, you can sort of ignore, uh, you know, the disappointments that your children have brought or the pain that other people have caused you or the things that you've lost, when you, when you can say, and see this is faith, when you can say, you know, come what may I'm in God's hands, or uh, my loss isn't really a loss, or in the midst of the morning, uh, Jesus is there, or however deep hell is, uh, deeper still is Christ himself. And I hope you understand what I mean by that. What I mean by that is whatever, I don't mean that Christ is in hell, per se, uh, in a gracious way. What I'm saying is whatever things sort of fill hell up, those are the things Christ died for, and then some more. So there's nothing that could ever happen to you. There's no disappointment you could feel. There's no mourning that could be present in your life that would be a larger factor than Christ himself. But that, of course, to be able to say that is faith. And one of the things that a community is good for is that we're able to remind each other of precisely that. So we're all going to have times when we're reactive. We're all going to have times when pain is greater than we think that we can bear. We're all going to have things that will seem to crush us. The value of a community of faith 
or the value of a church is not to indulge that. You know, to indulge that is to, is to be faithless. You know, to have your knee jerk every time something goes wrong, that's to be faithless. The way of faith is for people, is for your friends to gather around you and be calm. That's the reason we have funerals. The reason we have funerals is because people are so broken by what's just happened to them that their friends gather. I always worry when people say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want a funeral, I wouldn't want a big deal, or I wouldn't, you know, I always worry about that because I think you're not that strong. You know, you just, you're not that good. You know, nobody is. To love well is to be deeply hurt at the funeral point. So what do we do? We gather, we sing for people who can't sing, we pray for people who can't pray, we believe for people who can't believe, we console. You know, we know the pain is real, but we gather in community and we build up. Why do we do that? Because we understand, on our best days, we understand the presence of Christ among us. And it's the responsibility of the community to always have best days. And when we remember that, then, then that's where we are. So this was sort of at the bottom of the page there. Um, this, uh, this is 44. Uh, you know, these are these poor old broken guys on the road to Emmaus. And I do think it's fascinating, and Arthur said this last week, that Cleopas is probably Jesus' uncle. That is just a remarkable thing. So there's this uncle who sees him and doesn't know him, uh, which will make heaven a more interesting place. You always think when you get to heaven, you'll be able to spot Jesus a mile away. Hmm, I wonder. Is it, I wonder if he'll look like those pictures you have in your bedroom. You know the ones with Jesus with the blue eyes? Yeah, that's him. Uh, <laughs> When people ask me, I say they've had it. When people tell me they've had a vision of Jesus, I always ask what color his eyes were. And then when they say blue, I say it must have been the devil. He's a Jew, you know. There's no blue eyes. This is, this is sort of the pure, pure bluish. And the latest thing is the black Jesus. I was flipping through. There's some movie where the Jesus is black here coming up. So I was then. I only flipped long enough for the guy to say, "Well, it's not really about him being black." And I thought to myself, "Well, then." then why'd you make a movie about him being black? But nevertheless, I mean, I get the point. I get the point he's trying to make. Uh, so, you know, a little literary license. Anyway, bottom of 44, you know, here's these people who are just completely lost. And they're completely reactive in their way of engaging life. We've been hurt. We've been lost. You know, we've been abandoned. We were wrong. Imagine the emotions that they go through on Emmaus. Um, you sort of put your whole life into something. And then you realize uh, that you, you bet the wrong horse. Gee whiz, is that painful, right? And then um, something happens, you know, and Jesus begins to tell this story. And then what's, what's always fascinating about really great thinkers is that they merge. And you remember that Luther's great discovery, uh, one of his great discoveries was that God speaks realities. That bit at the end where Malin says, the best translation is, God spoke light. That's Luther. That was Luther who sorted that out. That's the reason the supper is the supper. God speaks reality. He looks at a dead man and he says, come back to life. Lazarus, come to life. And the reality is Lazarus comes to life. He goes to a leper and he says, you're healed. And you know, that's we'll read it for Thanksgiving again. The skin is healed. He says to the body and he says to bread and wine, now you're my body and blood. And it is, boom. It's the same thing. Jesus speaks realities. And because he speaks realities, he speaks himself present in your midst. There was the great bit about you don't just have scripture to tell you stories. It's not just information. 
You know, we, we so, so, much, so much of our Bible study at times is reduced to information. You know, the, the interns in the summertime would play Bible trivia. You know, and it was, it was cutthroat. You know, I couldn't go in there. One, they shame me because they know answers I don't know. Who was the son of the eighth tribe of the, you know, and they're sort of, you're like, you guys, I can't believe you have time for that. God bless you. And then you step back. Because it is really, it's difficult and it's carried over from year to year now because the people who were here the previous year know more of the answers. It's a bit of hazing. What's that? Yeah, they've got, oh yeah, no, they sit there like this, like, like they have the codes to a nuclear launch. Play with each other, you know, it's spooky, but it, which, is, which is okay in a sense. I mean, you have to know some stuff, but, but it's not just information, and I think this is what we lose. Go ahead. You want, and that was what Jesus delivered then um, to all these people who knew the facts, right? It was interesting announced that it wasn't the first time they heard the story. And this is so interesting about Christians in a church. You can watch this sometimes. You can see people who, you've all done this too. And, and we, it probably happens to us even sequentially in our own lives. Haven't you had this experience where you sort of know a Bible verse, or you know a story, but it's not really your story? You don't really own it yet, right? And that happens to you. And you're like, whoa, that's my story. That's me. I'm in that story. My face is in the crowd, right? There are people who sort of know things um, uh, objectively, or they know them impersonally, you know, or they know them only with the, in the way of their head. But it hasn't sort of. There are people who know all what it is to be a Christian, and they can particularly find um, people around them who aren't so Christian, and they're very happy to tell you about that. Yeah. But then you sort of, you say to them and you think, you haven't really kind of absorbed that, you know, yourself. I mean, one of the, one of the true marks of not being a Christian is to be so hard on other Christians. No? I think that was the part in this book I found, the part where we're talking about how you see your own brokenness. Right. And I think that's where some Christians get it wrong because they just see everybody else's brokenness. Right. And I thought, yeah, even when you're mourning your loss or what people have done to you, but Right. I think other Christians cheat themselves out of the gift of seeing that in them. I, am I making sense? Yes, if it's not repented of, it can't be fixed or forgiven. The gift of exactly. Christ is unbreaking you. Right. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's, a, you, it's very difficult to. I mean, imagine you. Imagine if you thought I was perfect. Imagine how hard it would be to love me, you see. <laughs> you can only love people. You can only, you can only love people. You, you can only love people when you don't have any illusions about them, right? It is, isn't it true? I mean, you can only really love people when you don't have any illusions about them. And it's the way you can love early and love well and love for a long time. When we, when we can't, you know, when we, we lose the notion. When the story is always about somebody else and not your story, you haven't absorbed the story yet. Got it? You know? And then, well, until it's your story. Which, now see, this is the, and there was the bit in here about the repeated reading of Scripture. So why do you read Scripture? Yeah, you read Scripture so you know the stories. I mean, clearly, if you don't know the stories, 
they never have the chance to apply themselves to you. But there's another step beyond the reading of the text. The, the, the Cleopas and, and, you know, maybe the, if that's his son, so that would be probably Jesus' cousin who's with him. Now that's the tradition. Cleopas went on to be a bishop. Second round of bishops, he, was, he wasn't the first round of bishops, so he was the second round. So Jesus' uncle and then his cousin. If it's Jesus' uncle and cousin, they knew the stories. They, they, they read the stories. They lived in the story, but it wasn't their story yet, you see. And that's sort of the, when it, when it becomes your story, you're much more generous with other people. I wonder if you could just, and that, you know, partly is you have to kind of go out now and listen as you go out in the church and the school. You have to listen. When people talk about the church or they talk about Christianity, if it's always talking about somebody else, and especially if it's always complained about somebody else, they haven't yet, it's a mark that they haven't yet absorbed the story, right? Because the more Christian you are, the more difficult it is to complain about somebody else. Because the deeper you understand that it's all about your brokenness first, right? There was this great thing where he talked about how the, the Lord sort of emptied them of, uh, of their story, of their concern, and then he sort of fills them up with the new story, right? Their hearts are burning within them. Why is that? Because, because suddenly they enter the story. And when they enter the story, they're no longer reactive, right? They're... Um, the opposite here isn't proactive. The opposite of being reactive is empathetic. They understand that there was a day when they didn't know the story either. And so they're very patient with people who don't get it. You see? So, you, so a, church, a church that's mature gets sort of, they're not only marked by Bible study, they're not just marked by Bible study, so it's not just knowing the story. They're marked by understanding that that story is our story, and so they become very patient of, of other people. And that's why it's so important in, in a church that you get the right people in the right places. You have to get the people who, the people, the people who lead. This is why scripture is so clear about sifting people and you know, trying to figure out who does what, and Gaining's gonna get ordained next week. And part of the thing we're gonna do is, at the altar, we're gonna read through a list of things. It's really a sifting process. We're basically gonna say, Okay, they've been sifting him for years now, and people have been watching over him, and there's been a pastor in charge and a bishop, and you know, he's, he's done a vicarage, and people have examined him, and people have vouched for him, and that's just the start. You see that? And then we'll say, and that's just the start. Okay? So it's very important to get people who, in the right places, who not only know the story, but live the story, and that makes all the difference. Yes, please. That's right. Right. That's right. It is it is a remarkable thing when when you when you see it that when you when when you allow your heart to burn within you and not extinguish it, you see. It's really quite a different thing. I was struck by um, a couple things. 47, where he just talks about how um, direct Jesus was and unsentimental. Now, normally when we think of being empathetic or sympathetic or supportive, one of the great mistakes that Christians make, which we've absorbed from the world, is to say to people, you can be whatever you want and do whatever you want, and Jesus will understand. The, the most stark 
Um, the most stark example of that is when somebody comes to my office and tells me they're going to do a sin and then says they're sure that the Lord will be forgiven of that. Or they ask me, will the Lord be forgiven of that? You know, and just in that, yes. Uh, sure it does. I'm going to divorce, I'm going to divorce my husband. I'm going to have an abortion. I'm going to divorce my husband. And they're normally fantastically huge. I'm going to say both sides of this. They're, yeah, it's a fantastically big deal. And it's a fantastically huge sin. They're usually very, uh, yeah, right, calculated. Even when I was in California, I went to see a pastor friend. I stayed with a pastor friend who used to be a student of mine. And he, he said, you know, the first thing he says, I'm getting off the plane thinking uh, the sun is bright and life's good. And he said, we got to talk. I got to, one of my elders is leaving his wife because she no longer pleases him. He says, this guy's, he's out of his mind. So the first two hours I was there, I'm spent, you know. And he, he just sort of said, you know, he just sort of said, this guy, he just comes in, he says, I'm, I'm just leaving my wife. She no longer pleases me. I just wanted you to know. And he comes to the other elder, and you sort of go, well, what's the answer? The answer is, the story isn't his story. He obviously knew enough that people thought he should be an elder. And he, he clearly could say, make the right noises and look, you know. But when push came to shove, it wasn't actually ever his story. Now, the one of the mistakes we can make is to think that Jesus is kind of standardless. And I thought it was fascinating, you know, um, this is not a soothing conversation. One of, the, one of the really interesting things about how people evaluate pastors and also how they evaluate, um, frankly, leaders in the church is whether or not they like them, you know. It, it's, 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 it, it's evaluated based on personality rather than performance. Um, the perf you know, personality has nothing. It would be best if you liked other people in the congregation, if you liked your pastor, that would be best. And it would be best if your pastor and other people in the congregation didn't make you dislike them. But the reality is um, a really bad pastor or even really bad parishioners can still deliver the goods, okay? Now, it, we don't prefer it that way, but the ultimate thing is this. Um, this wasn't a soothing conversation. The stranger was strong, direct, unsentimental. There were no easy consolations. It even seems he pierced their complaints with truth that they might have preferred not to know. After all, continuing, continual complaining is more attractive than facing reality. Isn't that fascinating? That is a great line. It is easier to complain. Absolutely. It is just exactly. Right. You know, one of the most, you know, one of the things we've, we've battered around here, uh, you know, is, and this is always a thing in churches, is, is, is job reviews in a church and how you review people and how you evaluate teachers and all that kind of stuff. And especially in churches, um, professional church workers get hives at this mention because I'm, I'm sure that all of you who have ever worked any place have had job reviews, right? I mean, you just do. You get a job and they say you're going to be, I talked to Keith Kovac the other day, they, re they review people every six months for the first seven years they're with this corporation. That's a, that's, a, that's a lot of review, you know? That's a lot of review. But they, why do they do that? Why do they do that? And he, yeah, and he said, and we take them into meetings where they could never understand what was going on and they really don't have anything to offer, but they need to see it happen in order that they can grow up and somebody else can then sit them down and put the pieces together. 
So it's a little like your job review. If you see a job review as, as a way of somebody getting, in, get, getting a good shot at you for an hour, really, really sort of getting you, getting you trapped in the corner of the ring and really pounding you, then, then it can't possibly. But if you see it as people saying to you, here's some things you really do well, and here's some things you could even do better, and look how bright the future is for you, right? Right? So this is not going to, that, I mean, that's what this is talking about. Uh, but you have to sort of drop your guard for that to happen. If you'll never let anybody say, I mean, see, do you see the sneaky notion behind this? The presumption is what? That you're perfect, right? The sneaky notion behind it is that you're perfect. Hey, you know what? There's nothing to me, and Jar Darlene, you're perfect too, and there's nothing you could change. You know, or, or what about, there's nothing I could change because I get everything right all the time. From stem to stern, I'm per, you know, if you say that out loud, you're kind of embarrassed even to really <laughs> suggest that, aren't you? I mean, so you just realize that is a great mark of the old Adam. It's much more crazy. Oh, yes. It's Exactly. It's the first step to being free. It's delightful. Yes, it is delightful. Now, now the it is. It is the burden of being around perfect people. You can just hardly stand it. It is awful. It is. It is. And see, well. <laughs> Yes, right. It was a mark of your perfection that you can admit your imperfection. Yes, brilliantly said. That's right. That's right. That's true. Yes, now one can't use your, you, can, you, yeah, you can't sort of say, I, uh, I'm not perfect, so you can't expect anything of me. That's not part of the story. That's a, that's a, that's a, so you got, it, you got the first step right, and then you took a wrong turn, right? Anita, you were going to say? Right. And so by the time they're adults, they fight like everything to show the world that they're right. Right. Because they have never done right. that in their psyche from the time they were little children. Right. It's really a difficult concept for somebody like them. Right. And so, you know, one, one of the Kapan book that we read a few years ago, it's always stuck with me, he said, where he talks about we ruined our children with our best intentions. You know, and then he goes on to say, and when we blow up the world, it'll be done. When, the, when we, fr so we, said when we fr finally have a nuclear war that fries the world, it will have been done by completely noble people who think that they're doing their best, right? No Exactly. By God, we'll make them perfect. <laughs> you know, because the thing is, is what part of being, um, you know, part of being, I mean, I hope we can understand this, part of being, Part of being an adult, and adults are always adults and kids are always kids. Part of being an adult is to give kids the freedom to be wrong and still love them. And then Carol sort of said the next thing, which is, the, and then you nudge them sort of back into being right as opposed to letting them just sort of go. I mean, that's the other, that's the other way it goes badly, right? One thing is you have to be perfect and there's no move. The other is, is you, you do whatever you want for crying out loud. You know, that's not loving anybody either. Yes, that's right. So what you want to say is, um, well, you grew up to be just like your old man. You're not perfect either. Whew, what a relief that'll be for you. 
But then there's no point in going through life being, being a complete slob about, you know, anything, right? It, or, or, or to think that God doesn't have standards, you know? We, we sort of can't get this idea of love and holiness, you know, we can't quite figure it out. But it is, uh, but I think there's an answer here. I mean, part of the answer is if you can always remember that Christ is present there with you. It's the strangest thing. If you start to think about the stories where Jesus was with sinners, I just ask you, just kind of think in your own head. This is a fascinating thing. Think about the stories you know that when Jesus was with sinners, okay? So first, let's see if I can lead you where I want you to go. First, name some sinners that Jesus was with. Just name some of the sinners. Can you think of some stories? Who are, name some sinners. Sorry, go ahead. Samaritan woman, okay, so we're gonna, I'm, I'm going to sort of sort the category. Samaritan woman, okay, who else? Zacchaeus, good, okay, good. Who else? Nicodemus, Nicodemus okay. I still got them all in one category. Go ahead. More all sinners? The all the disciples. <laughs> and you and me, all the disciples. Okay, good, okay. Mary Magdalene, good. Prostitutes, yeah, good. Who else? How about... Thank you so much. Now, in the partners in crime, though, you have two different, thanks for giving the other half of the story. Because there are some who go, there's the one guy who says, remember me in paradise, who gets to sit over with the prostitutes and the woman at the well and blah, blah. But remember, there's a whole other side, right? Like the Pharisees, the high priest, right? Judas, you know, the rich young ruler who won't have him, right? So how does Jesus deal with sinners? How does he deal with sinners in, in, when he's present to them? How does he deal with them? Good, but he does give the straight scoop. He does call out the sin. Right now, okay. Now press this a little farther. When he calls out the sin, what's the difference between how he calls out the sin for? Right, I was going to say the Samaritan woman. That is a great. All right, let me press you now. Now, when he, when he lets them figure it out themselves, when he lets them figure it out themselves, what is he, uh, what's his affect and how is he received? So I'm going to ask you both sides of the question. How does he engage people when he lets them figure it out themselves? And how do they feel about how he engaged them? Right. Right. But the, the thing is, is, Right. That kind of reminds me of his attitude with the Samaritan woman. I mean, he kind of, he doesn't say, Jesus, don't do that. He just says, I know. All right, let's just take these two examples. Let's take the Samaritan woman and John 8, okay? When Jesus comes up to those women, he's extraordinarily gentle, is he not? This is, goes to your question, too. So one thing is he's extraordinarily gentle. But how do they react to him? They? The Samaritan woman in John 4... Or the woman in John, at the well, yes, at the, at the well. So the woman at the well in John 4, or the woman in John 8 who's caught in adultery. Those were the two examples. So he gets up close to him. He is extraordinarily gentle, right? To the, to the disciples in John 4, surprised that he'll even be with the woman in John 8. People actually want him to kill her, right? And he obviously doesn't. So he's extraordinarily gentle. Now, what is their response to that, to his presence? What, what's, what's the response to, to, to his presence? What is it? 
How do, how do they look at him? Or sinners at table, for example, the prostitutes. How do they look at him? Well, go ahead. Exactly. And, and, but they don't, in wanting to please him, they don't take advantage of his gentleness. They're not familiar with him. They don't act as go and, and sin no more or go you and you're free. Is, is, it can be heard two ways. One is, I love you and you're free not to sin anymore. But it's also, don't go back to the sin that so easily entangles us and keeps, right? So he comes to them and they have the sense that he's other, right? Just like they did on the road. They, when their hearts burn within them, they have the sense that he's other. He's something else. This is a different deal. This is not a normal encounter. If it was a normal encounter, they would have gotten it before the Emmaus Road. They don't get it. This is, and to Pharisees, who will not have him, Jesus is tough as nails. You know what? But here's the thing. He's tough as nails in both situations. It's just, if he sits down next to you and says, you know, I know you're a sinner, but I really love you, and I, I, I'd like you to understand the scriptures this way. And if you nod along, he says, isn't that great? And no matter what happened before, you're the woman at the well, you're caught in adultery, whatever, you're free. People who will have him. Do you understand? See, he can, be, he can have standards. He can be holy and still be gentle. And so often in our own heads, what do we think? We think that because Jesus is gentle with us, that he's standardless right? We, we equate gentleness with sentimentality, fudging the truth, not being honest. That's how we interpret gentleness. How does Jesus interpret gentleness? Very gently he comes to people and he says, what? Oh, you foolish men, which in another place you remember that Jesus says is a penalty for that is going to hell, right? So he says to people, I mean, he's very straight up with them, but also very gentle. And then it's up to you. You may invite him along and say, thank you very much for that. My life is different. Or you may say, I I'll have none of that. Thief, the, and that was the two options on the cross. One says, thank you so much. This is glad it happened today because there's not a tomorrow. And the other guy says, you're a fraud, right? Exactly. Right. And that's, and you know what, no, and, and I'm going to even go farther. There's a middle ground. So now one says, remember, so now one says, you get to be part of a great big story and you're better than you could have ever been. Or there are some people who are harder than the heart. You know what the worst category is? Christians in the middle who pretend they got it or tell you they got it and they don't got it at all. Okay. Who reshape God in their image. Who say about Jesus, he's gentle and standardless. Or he loves me and forgives me so I can gossip, be mean to my kids, you know, be miserly, only think about myself. Does that make sense? The middle category is the most dangerous category because you appear to be one thing and you're really something else and Jesus can't help you there. It's a different way of refusing how he can help you. Go ahead. That's right. 
Right. Right. And the root of that, here's the root of that, and this is why it's so horrible to live in America at this moment. The root of that is, you see, do you see what ha is happening in this story? In the Emmaus story, there is the Jesus story or the salvation history story of the, or the Lord from eternity sending his son to save you story. And then there's the world story. And never the twain shall meet. What you just described is where the stories pollute each other. So we began to, we, we began to take glorious biblical words like humility and then we give them an earthly definition. So we import our definitions. That's how you can have a great thing like gentleness and suddenly gentleness becomes standardlessness. As if Jesus just will tolerate anything at all. Jesus is holy. He is other. He's different. And when he is present, when he sits down next to people, they go like this. At the same time, they are completely shattered and completely loved at the same time. See, and, and, and two things happen. They either accept the fact that he shattered them and are grateful for the fact that he's loved them, or they have to be in complete rebellion, or the middle ground is they pretend. They refuse to be shattered, but they pretend as if they are, and that's the worst sin in the church because that's a sin of hypocrisy. Exactly. Read the Bible. The Bible. Exactly. 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 Right. It's nonsense. It's all about judging. It's, it's all about, but it's judging in the way of Jesus. It's judging with Jesus' standards. It's pronouncing Jesus' judgment. See, what happens is we take judgment, which is a perfectly good word. This is the job review thing. This is the I'm not perfect thing. What, you know what I need? I mean, this is confession and absolution. I need Jesus to judge me. I need him to judge me sinful, and I need him to judge me righteous. If there's no, if there's no sins, then Jesus is no good to me. If I got nothing to forgive, I don't need Jesus, right? This is why churches where they, the confession has become Jesus as my life coach. I mean, you think, no, honest to God, well, you, you think that it's just, you think that it's, oh, they just kind of moved outside or they got it wrong. It is so wrong. It's so dangerous because it's so wrong. Because it's not just, I didn't live up to my potential this week. No, it's, you know what it is? I hate you. I mean, probably about 10 of you. And I could work up a good hatred for the rest of you if I had a few more minutes, you know, right? I mean, it's not just, I didn't reach my potential or I didn't get to, no, it's that I hate people and that I'm only self-interested. I mean, read what we say at confession. You know, why do we say that? Because it's true, okay? And then what's the next thing we say? Jesus died for that and he still loves me and guess what? Here's a fresh start, see? And that changes how we think about each other. It changes how we, th it lets us love people we would normally hate and forgive people we would normally avoid and be honest with people. The scriptures are full over and over again. It says the responsibility of pastors is to make those kind of decisions and it's the responsibility of lay people. Let the old women in the congregation raise up the young women in what? Truth and modesty. So they go, let the old men in the congregation raise up the young men in the congregation what? To live as those whom Christ, I mean it's a, Constantly talking about sifting, discerning, figuring it out, getting mature. I was thinking about it in the 
gently caress them. Right. If you ever do that to someone else's child, I've done that actually. It would be like a mutiny. I mean, How'd it go? You're mutiny. still here. <laughs> Did the other people leave? But I would hope that someone would caress my children, actually. That would be But see, we no longer have the hope that if Gigi corrects Claire, what, what, what should Jeezy expect? She'll expect a phone call from you, and what does she, I, I, know, I know, but what does she, but what does she expect? What does she expect you're going to call her and say, exactly, instead of calling and saying, thanks very much, we've told her not to wear that too, yeah, instead of that, what do we hear? By God, nobody will talk to my kid that way, right? Yes, that's right, that is right, that was, you know, and I can't even remember who that was now. That's right. It was brilliant. Yes, it was. <laughs> and you know what the interesting thing is? We were standing there. We were with him. It wasn't like he wasn't worried about the, I mean, he just took control of the situation. So it was beautiful. It was. And I thought, thank you, that was beautiful. It was. I hope I can do that for someone else's child. Say, hey, you know what? Right. Yeah, a little longer. <laughs> a little longer is, I think, what you want to say. It is good. It is. Did you really? Brave Gigi. Right. Let me cover the microphone for that. Thank you. Yes, right. <laughs> On the web. It'll be out by this afternoon. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I didn't mean to say that. How's that gone? Maybe she was grateful. Yeah. She's probably 
Absolutely, yeah. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. And then, We're over time. Just let me, I just want to note that in both of these cases, I, and that was the perfect question, and actually you said the same thing, so it was perfect question two times. Look, look, what, was, look what was consistent in those things. It was non-reactive. Brian, for example, did address it right away, and you addressed it sort of carefully through the parent. Brian did it, so it was non-reactive. It wasn't like Brian had a fit about it. There are no young boys who can shake hands. Or you know, it was non-reactive, right? It was extraordinarily gentle. But it was also firm, right? In both cases, it was, it was firm, okay? So I wonder, you know, that would be one of the ways we manifest the presence of Christ with each other. This is exactly how Christ deals with us. He's present, he's gentle, he's firm, right? When that happens, your hearts burn within you, and then you have the chance, you might say, well, I'll go with that. Or sometimes people say, well, I won't go with that. But that's not your business. That's, that's become the Holy Spirit's business. Then. So I wonder in our own lives together, you know, uh, what I don't want you to do is rush out with a rebuke for everybody around here because that's what we studied today and let's get busy, okay? That, that's, not the, that's not the issue. That would get it completely wrong. Why would that be completely wrong? Because that's reactive and not gentle, right? So you choose your spots, you know, you say it so gently. You give people room to repent, 
to be wrong. You know, you recognize, and in that, see, you already realize that you're not better than everybody else. You're, you're saying to somebody, I mean, as Brian said to Kit, this will take you a long way in life. Why does he know that? Because he's a long way in life, right? And you'll learn to accept the criticism. Absolutely. I've had friends talk me out of reactive, I don't want a reactive person yeah. in general, but I've had someone say, you know what? Yeah. You just think about that for a minute. <laughs> 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 and then you find that I'll, I'll go, exactly. I'll go an hour later. Right. But see, but see, that's not the same as being non-reactive and gentle and firm is not the same as not doing anything. Well, right? It doesn't mean you can delay it forever. It wasn't like I was being, you know, if you hear something, say. Right. What you're doing. Yeah, right. You're spinning and you're going to hell. Right. I mean, it wasn't, it was more simply like, you know, maybe think from this perspective. Right. And a reminder that she belonged to this community. You know, you're one of us. You know, you're not somebody else. You know, when you do this, other people have different thoughts about you. You're one of us, and we love you. And, and actually, you press people all the way to, and that gives a witness. You're always given some witness, right? You're always given some witness. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That was in Bible study. I can't take credit for that. Somebody gave that to me. Who gave me that? It was Lauren Winder. I think it was uh, Denise Wendy or somebody gave it. Lauren Winder has a new book called Real Sex, but she had excerpt part of it in advance. But, you know, part of the problem is, and I think this was true with my generation, you know, parents said, you can't have sex, but they never bothered to tell you why you couldn't, right? Because people need to know why, and they need actually... Uh, I mean, as, as I always tell kids in confirmation, if you haven't decided in advance of your date that you're not going to have sex, you know, you probably will. You know, you have to actually decide in advance what you're going to say. Well, she, her thing was, you can't have sex with your boyfriend because your community hasn't given you permission yet. If you'd like permission to have sex with your boyfriend, you come to the altar, and then the pastor will speak on behalf of the community, and the community <laughs> will witness it, and they will say, okay, you can have sex with him, among other things, Right? There's this brilliant, it was this brilliant little article about you belong to the body of Christ, we're the body of Christ. It's, it's the old thing I say with the elders. We tell you when you're in and we tell you when you're out. We tell you what, now none of us can think that way. Because why? Because I'm an individual. But what if we did? What if my daughter could say to you know, her date, um, I'm sorry I can't have sex with you because uh, my community hasn't told me that I can yet. But if you're interested in asking their permission, we actually have a right for that, and we'll dress up. Yeah, exactly. We actually, we actually know how to do that, and you, you know, let us know. We'll talk to the pastor. We'll set something up right in front of the altar. You know, parents went home that day. Someone went home, and we know I can't remember. And they told their daughter, by the way, you can't have sex until the community of church says. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, right. I, that was brilliant. I never heard it that way before, but it's, it made me think of it completely, that it's in the best interest of the community. Right. The community knows what's best. And you belong to the community. Yeah, absolutely. You're ours. Everybody functions. We'll let you. Yeah, that's exactly right. And see. Exactly, and you have to press that because we're the body of Christ. And it's not just a capricious thing because we're a celibate community. It's because, and it's not even because 
sex within marriage is best, although if you want to go read about the Rutgers marriage study, you can Rutgers EDU, for 20 years, 25 years, they've been tracking people who live together secularly. And people who live together have twice the divorce rates, twice the abuse, spousal abuse rate, twice the rate of sexual ch child abuse, uh, twice the rate of unhappiness, twice the rate of all the things. I mean, it's just a normal, so, but it's not even that. It is that, and then beyond that, it's, and by the way, because you're God's child, don't you know you're a temple of the Holy Spirit? That's who you are, and that's who we are, and of course you're in, and here we go. Yes, please. Yeah, I don't know this. <laughs> exactly, yes. That's a gospel way of saying it. Right. Right. Well, anyway, just, uh, I mean, so here's the thing. I mean, gently, firmly, non-reactively, you know, lovingly, in freedom that frees other people, knowing that when you're delivering it, you're not delivering your personal thing, you're delivering the presence of Christ, and then it's all about Him, and then your community begins to function the way it ought to function. If we could, and see, the thing is, the reason you need to then read your scriptures, last thing, every day and go to the Eucharist every week is because now it should do this in remembrance of me, should have a completely different meaning for you, right, after today. It's not just remembering the body and blood. Of course, it's remembering the body and blood. That's the start. But it's remembering that the body and blood, why do we go, 1 Corinthians 10? Because it builds the body. That's what makes the church. And now that we're in the church, we're not just in the church for body and blood forgiveness. We're in the church for a Eucharistic life. It's the whole package. It's the whole community. Right? And then what happens? People see that there's a community that actually lives this way. And then people say, gosh, I'd like some of that. And then people come to Jesus, you see, and then it multiplies. Church gets bigger. Jesus happier. You see how this works? So I don't know. You know, if we could just do that, it would be a very, very... But it takes maturity. It takes spiritual maturity. And you only get mature by repeated exposure to grace. You know, it builds up. It's like x-rays. So you go to the supper every week. You remember your baptism every day. You have your family devotions. This keeps going. Okay. Anyway, I, you know, it's fascinating stuff. It's great that there are people like that one around. Now, next week we're not.